y'all, and welcome to the What's Up Docs podcast, the documentary podcast for all of us. I'm Tony Bell, the creator and host. Rather than doing a traditional land acknowledgement, I'd like to speak about our new Secretary of the Interior, Deborah Ann Holland. In high school, I learned that the Department of Interior was established to be a good steward of the lands in the United States. It wasn't until I graduated from college that I began the work of self-education and learned the truth. Since its inception, the Department of the Interior has engaged in deliberate and systemic acts of violence against indigenous people. This is done through displacement and land theft, the destruction of cultures, the dismantling of families, and the withholding of care. So the announcement of Holland's nomination for Secretary of the Interior is beyond historic. Holland is a member of the Laguna Pueblo, who are the original inhabitants of what we now know of as Albuquerque, New Mexico. She's a single mom who started a salsa company to support herself and her daughter. There were times in her life when she did not make enough money and had to rely on the help of friends and sometimes food stamps. She is a true progressive who is for abolishing ICE, advocating for the Green New Deal, and Medicare for All. Most importantly, she has been a strong advocate for her community and taking great strides to strengthen the economy of her people. To have an Indigenous woman who is all about her people in such a tremendous position of power that was originated to destroy her people is powerful and something we should all celebrate. In this episode, I speak with writer and director Elagod Spratton and producer and costume designer Chester Argonal Gordon. In our conversation, we chat about how they met, their documentary project, Peer Kids, and the joys and strength needed to stay true to themselves and their protagonist stories and voices. Because they are my favorite power couple, this episode's song is Ashford and Simpson's classic, Solid. Here's our conversation, which was recorded in July, 2020. You know, we met uh, at the New Orleans Film Festival in 2017, and y'all came to a presentation I was doing on fiscal sponsorship. and I don't know how we connected to start talking, but like later that week, we went out to brunch together and we just had a good time. And ever since then, we've just, just stayed connected and we've learned that we know some of the same folks. Um, I'm, I'm speaking uh, specifically of, of Terry and Jeffrey, Terry Franklin and Jeffrey Molina. And they, they're amazing too. And I just want to kind of talk about, um, Number one, I don't know how the two of y'all met. So how did you two meet? What is that story? We met on a dating app called Jack. Apps work, okay. This, this time it worked. This time. I had like, my profile, I had like, you know, I wanted, I was really into movies. Um, I didn't want to talk to imbeciles and you should be able to read and write. I find that a lot of people on dating apps when they like, you know, like, like that's how they read and write for real. When you talk to them later on, conversations end up being like those abbreviated words. Right. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is how you communicate. <laughs> you know, John Waters has that quote, if you go to somebody's house and um, they don't have any books, don't fuck them. Uh, yes. Yeah. Elegance <laughs> books. And I was like, wow, he really reads. Yeah. <laughs> he really reads. <laughs> I read a lot. It's true. So, like, how long ago did y'all like meet? It was six, six years. Six years ago, we met right before I, right after I graduated undergrad and started film school. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And uh, was it love at first sight? Yeah, I think it was. See, we basically <laughs> I came over in elegance. Like, we sat outside the entire time. Yeah, I had like, a lot at of these like two hours just talking. I had a lot of trauma. In my past dating apps, and I resolved to do things differently this time. So I did not allow him into my house. I was just like, we can sit right here and talk. Mm-hmm. But eventually, I got hungry. And anyone who, you, well, you know, Tony, my, my appetites rule me entirely. You know, I like to eat. So I got hungry, and Chester was like, well, I'll cook, I'll cook dinner for us. I'm like, I don't have any food. Well, I'll go in the fridge and I'll make it work. And Jorna cooks, and we haven't really been apart since. Yeah. I want to talk to kind of each of you about how you got into film. So, Chester, how did you get into? I got into film because of Elegance was going to Tish at the time, and 
a lot of people at a school didn't support his stories. They didn't think that you can tell stories about Black people the way that he was telling them, and specifically the Black people he wanted to tell stories about, like trans Black women and just underrepresented voices. Most of the people at a school are making movies with uh, little kids uh, from behind the head. So no one would produce those movies for him. I said, I'll do it. And it, it was also him and another student there, Jovan, uh, who I was like, no, I'm a, I'm a, I am I'm got y'all. And I called Jovan, I was like, Jovan, who's producing your movie? He said, well, nobody's asked me yet, actually. And well, I, I'll do it, Jovan. And he's like, well, okay, um, let's talk about it. And I also costumed one of his friends, Raven Jackson at the time, or classmates rather, Raven Jackson. She called me to uh, costume design her short. I said, okay. And when she asked me, a bunch of other students got jealous that I was doing her short because they knew I was a stylist. So then they started calling me. Elegance had a friend, Christy Crosser Romano, who was in Even Stevens and also Kim Possible. And she was also the first Belle in Beauty and the Beast on Broadway. And uh, she, we went out to like dinner with her and her costume designer at the time in Connecticut threw a book at her head and quit. Hey, can you come up to Connecticut tomorrow? I'm in Milford and costume design this feature for me. We start shooting tomorrow or <laughs> the day after tomorrow. And I was like, I had like a 104 degree fever. I took some antibiotics. I was like, I'm coming. I'm getting on the Metro North now. <laughs> like literally, I was like, you know, if I don't do this now, then I'm not going to get into features. And I'm like, you know, I just, I just have to do it. And I did it. And then I, I ended up meeting all of these like uh, teen stars from Nickelodeon and Disney shows that ended up being in the film and stay connected to their moms. These like really crazy momagers. I continued to produce films for uh, NYU Tisch students, uh, grad students. And I also produced, uh, well, Elegance at the time, he stopped working on his documentary, Pure Kids. And I, you know, I told him like, you know, it's time for you to finish this movie. It's here, it's time for you to like finish it. I'm like, look at the chalkboard paint, paint on this wall. We threw some chalkboard paint on the wall. Next day it dried. He literally sat there and I made him like, you know, write the entire outline out. Literally, I called the editor the next day. I was like, hey, Elegance wrote out the outline to the film. So now you got something to edit. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm I'm like a producer who's also a sort of like a manager and just kept pushing it. And then we worked on our television show together, House in Viceland. We just continued to develop projects and develop projects. It seems like every time I um, see y'all at the festivals, y'all always doing lots of, not some stuff, lots of stuff. Yeah, so Elegance, I want to get into some of your projects like Pure Kids in My House and all that, but Elegance, tell us how you got into um, film. And you mentioned film school. Yeah, um, well, it's kind of like a little happy accident. I'd spent 10 years of my life homeless because of my sexuality. My, my mother kicked me out day. And uh, at the end of that, you know, one of the things I did to survive while I was homeless was steal art books. So I would steal, you know, everything from like, you know, cubism and impressionism to surrealist film and, um, you know, film noir and Almodovar and Spike Lee. And I preface that by the time I got to the Marine Corps, my recruiter, I took the entrance exam, the ASVAB, and I scored very high. And my Marine Corps recruiter was like, you should pick from the top three jobs. You qualify for all the jobs in the Marines, but pick from the top three. So we crossed off everything else on the list. It's what he thought to be the top three, three jobs. And number one was like intelligence. And I'm like, you know, I'm nobody snitch. <laughs> Journalism was another job, and, you know, I, I appreciate the news and current events, but it's not really something I'm interested in producing myself. And then the third one was a combat filmmaker, and I saw an image of a Marine in a photo, like, he's upside down in a helicopter with this expensive camera with a long lens. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. And then, you know, my recruiter was like, did you ever think of being a filmmaker? And because I had stolen all those books and re- eventually read all those books, I had thought of it because I had read Almodovar, I had read Spike Lee's book, I had read, you know, Kubrick's book and so many others. So, and I was like, sure, why not? And then I shipped off to my first duty station where I began making uh, documentaries for the Marines. Everything from 
of like actuality films of how weapons work to uh, mainly retirement ceremonies. Uh, you know, and I'll never forget at my base, this general calls me up to his office and his office was kind of like Dr. Strangelove. Like, you know, like the whole globe is there and um, except instead of nuclear warheads, he had his logo up on all, all over the world and he, he prided himself in controlling two thirds of the Earth's surface. And I was really shook. I'm like, oh my God, this white man who can, controls the world wants to talk to me. Oh no, what did I do? And he up to the office and he shows me his script for his retirement ceremony. And he's like, so Bratton, what do you think about this? Do you think it's the way to go about it? And I was stunned because it was the first time in my life a white straight man had ever asked me my opinion about anything. And I'm like, well, what's different about this? And it's like, oh, he thinks I'm a film director. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to keep doing this because <laughs> you know, it's going to be working. And then you know, I finished my Marine Corps career. I ended up enrolling at Columbia University. How long were you in the Marines? Five years. Uh, and what made you decide to join? You know, when I first got homeless, I was very young. So it was like I was a street kid and a club kid and I did poetry. And it was hard, but I was so young and so kind of like energetic. It was kind of fun and games. And then as I got older, those opportunities and those access started to dry up and I ended up in a homeless shelter and I called my mom up and I asked her if I could come back home. She asked me if I was still gay. Of course, the answer was yes. And she suggested I join the military. And at the time, I was really, really upset by that because it's like, this is 2005. So, you know, the Iraq war, Afghanistan war. I mean, both of those wars were still happening. And yeah, there's a chance you could have been sent off the combat, but also the fact that she just didn't accept you. Well, I mean, it's, not only do you not accept me, but I'd rather you be blown up in my house. You know, that's kind of how I took it. And then, so I, of course I said no. It ended in a horrible argument. And then I went back to the shelter and I kind of looked up and looked around and I looked in this room that was mostly, you know, black men, other men of color. And I've been there for decades living like this. And I kind of looked around and I'm like, is that really going to be me? Am I going to be this old man with this cart and this crazy beard? And he's, you know, walking around, you know, bumming up change. Is this my future? The answer in my spirit was no. And next morning, a recruiter, Marine Corps recruiter, recruited me. He was like, do you ever think about being a Marine? And I was like, well, if I get to look as good in that uniform as you do. <laughs> Two weeks later, I was at boot camp. And yeah. And then you know, I, after the Marines, I went to Columbia, where I was studying African-American studies and anthropology and French. The thing was that Columbia, it was kind of like a couple of things at once that made me really commit to being a film director. Um, first off, being in a, a, this Ivy League school where, you know, my whole thing about going to college that time in my life was like, I need to study something that I'm going to stick to, right? So African, African-American studies, anthropology, all these were ways at getting to understand myself, to understand the trauma that I've been through, right? And I would write these really you know, erudite papers, and I would get crazy good grades, and it was, it was going all right, all right. But then the other black people I was writing about, I would show them my work, and they wouldn't recognize themselves in it because of the language, you know, like the academic. Yeah, yes. And therefore, and, and yes, therefore. all of that. Yeah, I, I'm familiar with the academic ease. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it is a whole other dialogue, yeah. It's a whole other dialogue, and it was the purpose, you know? And then at the end of the first semester, I looked up and I saw all these kids going home. And at, in the first semester, Ivy League school is a big thing. I had no idea. So parents are there and pets and sisters and brothers and there are signs. And I kind of looked around and I'm like, well, what is that for me, right? Who's waiting for me to come home? And I kind of kept asking myself that question. And then I looked up one day and I was on Christopher Street Pier. Mm -hmm. in the West Village where, and I looked around and I'm like, oh wow, there's all these black and brown people who are queer, who are homeless in this space, just like I was when I was a kid. And for us, we are each other's home and this is our mm -hmm. family and this is where we're home. So soon after that, I bought the camera I used in the Marine Corps as a combat filmmaker. I bought some microphones, I bought some tapes, this is a while back, and I, I started making queer kids. So. And then once I committed to using the medium to tell my own story, 
I was hooked and I've been doing it ever since. You have been putting out some uh, amazing, amazing content. So, okay, so let's get into um, Pure Kids. So when did you start filming? Uh, the summer of 2011. I was really intrigued by the, um, the first title card. Right. that you put in there because it is very much like in your face <laughs> <laughs> so do you want to tell our audience who haven't who haven't seen it yet yeah well i mean basically i the the opening uh, title card is you know um the stonewall riots are celebrated all over the world it's like beginning the gay rights movement yet um out of america's two million homeless youth uh, half of them are lgbtq and more than half of them are black so it's a, it's a charge to the audience to say what I truly believe is that the contemporary gay rights movement has left behind, you know, people of color and working class people by making peer kids, you know, mind you, this is all coming at the beginning of my education, of my college. So I'm learning about Christopher Street. I'm learning about Sylvia Rivera, Marsha P. Johnson in classes, you know, and in the way you learn history in, a, in school, it's like, that was then, and now it's better, right? Right, and, and as you get older, you learn that is not the case. That was then, and now is not necessarily better. Right, well, I was old when I started college, so. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> right away. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, like I, I wanted to show the world, one, what I had been through. Yeah. And let people know that with all of the Paris's burnings of the world, that in all of the gay marriage and gays in the military, that the people who look like Sylvia and Marsha, these black and brown bodies, you know, who were in the 1960s, you know, the people with the least to lose often have the most to gain in revolutionary kind of ideation. Right. I wanted to show that there are still people out there with very little to lose. And I wanted to challenge the gay rights movement to do better and to come back for the people that had left behind. Right, right, right. So I, I just kind of want to backtrack a little bit um, with Chester, um, because you know, Elegance told us about his, um, his, his family, um, some, about his family situation. What was your um, family situation? Um, I was the only child. Oh, you are. I'm an only child, too. I grew up, my father's been incarcerated since I was born. Yeah, we, we actually talked about that when we had that big old brunch in New Orleans. Yeah. yeah my mother, so my mother had a lot of help. I, I was raised by old women. I was raised by my grandmothers, my mother, my mother's sisters, my father's sister. And then my father had brothers, but, you know, they're not really reliable. So, you know, um, I grew up in Maryland. Um, I moved to New York in 2012 when the world was supposed to end. I started working for a fashion designer, Heather Lawton. I was the head of a production for, I think, two seasons. And I also worked for Jules Woods, this uh, stylist. But I guess growing up for me, I was bullied. Um, I, I was always trying to find myself and find people who look like me and act like and I guess that's what attracted me to peer kids even because of like the equivalent to uh, Christopher Street in New York is K Street in Washington which is like the like a red light district for um, trans women and um, when I was 12 I would go there with a friend of mine named Nunu that went to uh, middle school with me because we went to Charles Carl's at, at the time and um, I would hang out with the girls all night. Like we would literally, I would be there with them kicking. They would like Vogue in the middle of the street. And um, I just remember just loving it because of like, they were just so unapologetically themselves, you know? And, and it, it just, the power that radiated from them in these moments and not even realizing the oppression that was happening or, you know, what, what was actually happening even. Like, I see they're taking dates, but I'm like, oh, they choose to do this. Like, you know, as a child, that's what I thought. You know, like, this is, this is just what they wanted to do. And, you know, so 
fast forward, seeing Elegance do Pure Kids, I'm like, oh, wow, they choose to do that. Like, you know, they, they <laughs> have to do that. Like, whoa, whoa. happening? And, like, how glamorous I thought it was, you know, and how glamorous it really wasn't. It, it's interesting how perspective work, I think. But, yeah, that's how I grew up. Um, so Chester, talk about you. Mitch has talked about some of your um, your costuming, but um, tell us about your experience at Con. That was crazy. Uh, so, okay, so what got you there? Let's start there. I was there because of basically we were looking for people for Elegance's oh short. Award. Yeah, he got an award at the Latex Ball, and I was taking. I was like, Elegance took photos of balls, and I was like, Oh, I'm going to try to do it too because he gave me his first camera. I was taking photos and I like talk Luna to let me onto the stage and India Moore, who's on Pose right now, this is before happened Saturday Night Church, before she was even an actress, you know, she was a character study in Danielle's film Port Authority and I was shooting the, her, uh, what is it called? Sizzle. Her Torino sizzle for the Torino labs. I guess you have to minute of how it feels the world feels and the uh, at the actual ball walking a female category getting chopped and or a cis girl a cis category getting chopped and um i stopped and yelling and said what are you shooting she's like i'm shooting this movie that i want to turn into a feature you know and elegance knew her because they went to school together she she was like years above her and I didn't know that this Danielle had cast Afronauts that I was in before I even met Elegance knew a Tom Obadoma's movie so I was like uh well when you do do it I'm a costume designer I would love to costume it for you and fast forward she calls me and like hey it's that time uh you still want to costume my film and I was like yes so I I did it it turned into this like thing I met so many people, Martin Scorsese produced it. Um, so the film ended up being invited into a director's fortnight and on Satsuma God. And, and uh, she chose Satsuma God and um, we flew to Cannes. Well, actually we flew to London to meet our friend Topher and Topher for a couple of days where I, we ended up meeting Claire Denis. Um, Gemma, who's a really good friend who was at the London Film Festival, but she left recently because of the racism. Um, we left London, then went to uh, Rome for a little while, I think, and then we left Rome and then went to Cannes. And I mean, just flying into Cannes is magical because it's like, wow, like the island, the scale of everything. And everyone on the plane that left from Rome to go to Cannes was there for the festival. Can was like being like so I wore beads like I had my hair braided and I wore beads and I just remember like you know shutting down the main drag of Can like okay it was now come on because you do do that <laughs> it was crazy <laughs> the first gender non-conforming uh, African American to have a film in competition at Can so and, and normally that kind of stat you wouldn't think would get the kind of that much attention but the Esther, you know, was styled. It was like walking down the street with Rihanna. Like it, it literally stopped. It and people take pictures with. Um, like, can I take a photo with you, please? Please let me take a photo. That like, okay. It was really great. <laughs> but it was amazing. And to walk the carpet to experience the moment with Lena and Yari and McCall and Finn and even Danielle. It was great. It was really great. You both are in the documentary and the narrative space. And that is that is unique for um, someone in this business in the US. In Europe, it's definitely more accepted for folks to, to uh, like straddle both sides or live in both worlds as not seen as a conflict. But here in the US, like there is this idea that you have to kind of like pick one and y'all are like, no, <laughs> we're not doing that. Well, I guess it's not to see it as a difference, to be honest with you, the there's no difference between docs and yeah, I don't. I, I have like a cinematic dyslexia. I don't really see a difference between the two forms. I mean, well, first of all, the whole idea of like specialization in art is kind of ridiculous. Like, I, to me, like I, I was raised with the expectation I would become a Renaissance man, that I would know a lot about a lot of things, and to apply that knowledge and I, and 
to be honest with you, you know, with my mother, I grew up in a single house, single parent household as well. My mother always told me that, you know, as a black man, like your brain is your Swiss, Ar Swiss Army knife. It is the, that you, the tool that you will be able to turn to. So it's important to be able to arm yourself with as much knowledge around the world as you possibly can. And then I kind of look at it like my favorite directors, they all were the best, the best directors in history are both documentary and narrative. Kubrick, Scorsese, Spike Lee, the list goes on and on and on and on of like the very, very best <clears throat> do both. And like ultimately when it comes down to it, once you start editing it, you are now creating a form of fiction, even if you're editing the truth. And whoever is holding the camera is ultimately telling their own story. So there's an element of documentation that's going on. No matter what. So I try to use, I, I, so I, I'm in a, a constant conversation with what is actually my life and what I imagine to be my impact living my life. Try to live out that conversation of the work that I make on both sides of the, of the coin. Right, right. Yeah, so talk about that more, like wanting to, needing, knowing, living your life and the impact part. The, the reality of it is, is that like, oh gosh, I'm, I'm in the middle of a, my second documentary right now. It's called um, Harlem Hellfighters. It's about, you know, the first group of black soldiers to fight in a world war in the United States. And I particularly focus on James Reese Europe, the leader of the group who incidentally brought jazz to France and kind of started that love affair between France and black American culture. And in it, like, I'm really focused on W.B. Du Bois' con the concept of double consciousness. Yes, yes. What does it mean to be a problem in the soul souls of black folks? Yes. And um, so, like, with that kind of as a guiding principle for my life, documentary and narrative is how I try to explore my particular experience of double consciousness in that I've lived the kind of life where, you know, it could become very easy. There's times in my life where I can literally step outside of what's happening and watch it like it's a movie, but it's my life. It's really what's, this is truthfully what's happened to me. And in those moments where I step outside of it, very often those are survival moments. Those are moments where you make some critical assessments and, and kind of step back into the situation and make new choices that hopefully will get me out of those moments of struggle and turmoil. So like there, like that kind of consciousness, that way of seeing one's life, I think tends to, it, it explains to me why I'm interested in documentaries and narrative films. I'm, as a black gay man, like in Paris is Burning, one of my favorite movies, the military guy talks about how being a black gay man is the greatest social behavioral experiment of all time, where you're constantly, you know, adjusting yourself in order to fit, in order to have access, in order not to be hurt, in order to find pleasure, whatever it is that you're looking for. That type of kind of code switching is stylized. So, that I view like, you know, my experience as a black gay man as being one that is both like ultra real yet ultra contrived. And I think that that tends, it, it, it tends to explain to me why I'm interested in both documentary and feature, why I don't see a difference between what is real and what is created. Because ultimately you're really creating something anyway. Ooh, okay now, woo. <laughs> Oh my goodness, my, I think I, I just grew a lot of new neurons with that. <laughs> like the brains are being stimulated, stimulated. <laughs> I like when that happens, it's like, oh. <laughs> so Chester, like what's, how, what is your view on like double consciousness? Well, you know, being non-binary, I consider myself all. I consider myself and I like to live outside of uh, the, like I try to be a good human first, you know? And so when I make decisions or choices, I understand that, you know, I understand that I live in the United States. And I understand that living in the United States means that, you know, as accountable as I want to be, sometimes I can't always be fully accountable, you know, or rather 
it's like it's like when they say you sell your soul to the devil a little bit, you know. But I feel like to be in this entertainment industry, mm. any capacity, to be a gaffer, to be the person who's doing sound, to listen to some of the stuff you hear when you're doing sound. Yes. Or, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's almost like you know, or cold switching even, you know, like going like in a space where like at Sundance is an example. There's white people there. And when I go there, there's white people there that's ready to fuck me over, you know, that's ready to get into bed with me to say, you know, uh, you're going to get less than what you're worth at the beginning. And that's just how it's going to go. I want to make a comment and then I want you to continue. But like in all these um, discussions that are happening um, in the documentary field in light of what happened around the protests surrounding George Floyd and the magnitude of those. And Breonna Taylor. Yes. Let's, let's say them all. There was a video someone posted on YouTube of Ruby D in the 60s um, reading off a list of names of Black men who had been murdered by the police. Yeah. In the 60s. And it's not old. It is not old. There's a list from 1910. There's a list from the 1920s, yes. 40s, yes. 40s, 50s, 60s, yes. 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. The odds. I mean, it just keeps happening and happening. And happening. I remember um, I was watching um, something on YouTube about the, this. This um, academic was talking about what well, I, I can't remember what the talk, name of the talk was, but essentially he was talking about how every like century or every decade, um, black folks have been essentially put in a position to ex- try to explain to white folks like why you shouldn't <laughs> like hurt us. So, and he took it back to the abolitionists, you know, um, you know, like folks like Frederick Douglass. I mean, that was, that was what you do, like, you know, people would like go explaining, but also like during the height of the lynching um, crisis and lynching area in, in the U.S., there are black folks going into white spaces saying, you know, this is why you shouldn't lynch us. And now we're like, okay, this is why the police shouldn't shoot us. One of the reasons why I think in terms of documentary film, you know, like I'm sure we'll get into Peer Kids, but one of the things that really, really struck me in getting this movie out to festivals was that like, we, we play, I won't say the festival's name, but we play, screw it, it was Doc NYC. And I'll never forget going to the filmmaker party and, going, and mind you, their program, it's like, if you were to look to see the faces of the people in the movie, you would think this is the most diverse diverse festival in the world. Yes. The filmmaker party, and it's literally like 80% 50-year-old white men. And and I think a part of the reason why this violence against black people is cyclical, why we're always put into this position of having to beg white folks not to be savages towards us, even all us savages, right? Right. It's projection. It's projection. We don't we have never had a real conversation in, in our in this, the progressive white spaces that are supposed to be supporting us they cannot admit to themselves that every time black people make progress here comes this violent backlash but this this violent backlash is a part of the democratic process and whenever you make these movies whenever these white people make movies about us they act as if this is not true they act as if now being special like hoop dreams is a movie that i really don't like very much I can't stand it because it, 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 it presupposes that the only black people worth saving are those who are exceptional, number one. And, and, and then number two, it ignores the fact that this, that, that it, the gaze itself is violent. You know, that somehow these kids, if they can just put enough balls in the hoop, right, that they will be able to experience the American dream. Like Chris Rock has this great joke where he talks about like living in his neighborhood, right? Mary J. Blige is in his neighborhood. I think one of the top basketball players of the time was in his neighborhood and they're the only three black people who live there. They're like dentists. Yes. Almost convenience stores. They do like really regular shit. That notion of like black exceptionalism being the only scenario within which black life is valuable Mm -hmm. is something totally propped up by the modern documentary industry. I feel like, you know, we have to perform a lot. Ooh, child. To go into these rooms and the entire time, like we never get to have a break, you know? Like we can't, we can't like, we can't not talk to the white person who wants to talk to us. Like we have to have a conversation with them because if we say, hey, we don't want to talk to you right now. Like, you know, you can listen to 
Q&A or, you know, ask a question then instead of now taking up my personal time. It's, you know, it's a lot. It's, it's a dance, you know, and yeah, and being on the, the industry side, um, it's definitely a dance that you have to negotiate because, you know, it's like trying to determine particularly white folks who actually, um, I, I kind of hate the word allies because. Um, and diversity, it's another word. They yeah, can I hate diversity too. I hate people of color because I'm black. And it's like, you know, for so long, like this, the, the diversity moment that's happening right now for so long, like black people have not been at the forefront of this. We've not had the opportunity to make our television shows really, or have as many television shows as white people or have them be on stations on HBO, like white people, you know, or and, and, marketed. Uh, and marketed and actually sold. And it's considered to be an award thing. And it's like, you know, uh, it's only an award thing when a white person does it and they're the person, the white person's behind the black, the black thought. Coming into these communities um, that aren't theirs and, you know, telling these stories and then really parachuting, parachuting out and then getting all the funding. And then I'm getting all the awards and all the accolades. And um, they're like, particularly with everything that's happening right now. Because one thing I think this pandemic, what Miss Rona has successfully done is she has helped us to cut away the bullshit. Yes. You know, because it's like, you know what? I ain't got time for any of that. Are you going to or are you not? Don't talk around it. Otherwise, do not waste my time. Like, cause like I know, I know my patience has been real short. Yeah, same. And, like, and the stuff that I have like normally kind of like talked softly around or, you know, I'm like, I don't care. But also it, can, it could be turning 49 too. But <laughs> <laughs> I think that Rona has a simmering. It has us in the house really thinking. Yes, because yeah. we have alone time, and it's just you and your thoughts. Right for me, it's just me and my two cats. You know, it, it's like people are now like, hold on, we need to hold that episode of Golden Girls accountable. Right. Mm-hmm. We need to hold right. That now. <laughs> I know, but you know what? I wish they had done some other stuff before they took off that episode of Golden Girls. Yeah, or, or Tyra. They're like, remember that time Tyra Bates had America's Next Top Model? Oh my God, I remember that. Yes, she had a, like, honey, folks in black face and white face and brown face and red face. Or when she wore the fat suit and went out into the community and said, oh my God, I'm glad I could take this off and not be fat anymore. Right. Because it was too much. And it's like, right. girl, did you just hear what you just said? And it's like, <laughs> but the funny thing about it is, it's like 13 years later, people were like, and by the way, Tyra Banks, that was after. Yeah, 13 years later. But also, it's still not addressing the the whole, like, I mean, to me, some of that's, I mean, it's necessary, but some of that stuff is so, like, pro- a lot of performative bullshit because, um, because in the case of Breonna Taylor, um, the people who murdered her are, are still free. And, but in case of many, many folks, I mean, the fact, the fact that, um, George Floyd's murderers are in jail is the exception. It, it is not the rule. And here's the thing, and that's no guarantee anyway, because like people were rejoicing for that. I mean, you don't know what that's going to happen when it goes to the grand jury, because of many times when the grand jury has opted not to continue. Well, here's the, here's the thing that drives me crazy about all of it. And this kind of brings us back to like, the, the I guess the documentary industrial complex, right? <laughs> This cop in broad daylight. I mean, I mean, Breonna Taylor. Let's, let's talk about both of them. Breonna Taylor. This woman is at home in her bed, asleep. Asleep. A, a emergency. Vi- what is it called? Vital worker. What is, it, what is the term? Vital necessary worker. I don't even know. What the, essential. Essential, essential worker. worker. Essential worker. Right? Yeah. She, so she's a hero, right? They're supposed to be heroes. Cops are supposed to know who these people are. They walk into this woman's house shoot her in her bed and then the governor of the state is talking about and the, and the mayor of the city is talking about some yak like well we don't know what happened and we don't need to put him in jail what do you mean but i kind of look at documentary film i look at this cop with george floyd 
it, it reminds me when I when I had my baby, my little sister, and she was a baby, and she was doing something that she's not supposed to be doing, and she'll look at you while she's doing it, and be like you can't tell me what to do because I'm two and you're 19, and if you act the wrong way, our mom is gonna come in here and mess you up. That man looked at the camera and killed this man in broad daylight, and with the full understanding that nothing would happen to him. Yep. The culture of chronicling black pain. Right. Without any goddamn consequences. Right. One consequence. Whether it is the co-opting of black culture with people, right? When we look at, you know, how the ballroom scene has been consumed in the main last year, right? We are we're in a constant conversation of black extraction. Watch them be in pain, photograph it, get rich off the image and keep on going as if nothing has ever happened. Well, and it's a cycle of trauma too. Yeah. That, like, the thing that nobody talks about is the cycle of how we, how everyone's hurting each other in a way and how, you know, mm -hmm. accountability, nobody wants to be held accountable for doing any of it. Well, you can't hold white supremacy accountable when this is the scenario. When this is the system. Yeah, this, this is, this, the, the system, I mean, I, I don't know who said this first, but the system is operating the way it was designed to. Yes. And, and this is, and, and I'm a big Edward Said person. Said is talking about that really always stuck with me is the fact that like, we live in this, this fallacy that the only weaponry of, of white supremacy is an actual weapon, right? They have to be in tank. No, mm -mm. Well, the real weaponry is the pen. It's the camera. Yes. It's, it's the policies. It's, um, it's the, who, who's curating. If you bring about the documentary, it's who's making the funding decisions. Yes. And, and which, which people of color you get to curate. Because you pick specific, yes. sometimes specific people of color are picked because they're oppressors too. And they, they, they curate according to what the white people want them to do so they can maintain their position that they right. and there's no, and there's no fundamental conversation about the extraction of black labor to be profited off of this has been a fundamental principle of the american system since slavery and they the expectation that when we are in um places of work that we are supposed to do more for less issues around like pay equity just like our labor is valued but we aren't right and if this tool, like when I, I'm so sick of going into these supposedly progressive documentary spaces where this power dynamic is entrenched and unchallenged and unthought about and, and thus not ever dismantled. And, 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 and you ask us to fill out the grant proposal and to go to the lab and to do all this stuff for what? So we can be present while you make money off of us and we don't? Uh, you know, so I, I am a gatekeeper, right. and I keep all of this in mind. Right. So I look for those red flags, okay? Red flag number one, um, when a, a white person is doing a film about a community that's not theirs, okay? If there are no um, black, indigenous, or uh, people of color, I ask why. Right. Okay. Um, if there are, and it's clear from the proposal that those folks do not have any kind of power, I ask why. I ask very specific questions around who the audience is, because sometimes a white filmmaker who's kind of parachuting in will say, my audience is everybody. I'm like, no, it's not. Because I could tell from your proposal, and particularly from like who you plan to distribute this film to, and the fact that you don't have any like community groups listed or anything, you know, you haven't begun to develop these relationships that who your audience is for. So, and I will point out that, um, you know, the, the film that you would make, uh, particularly another red flag too, is that they say they want to raise awareness because my next response is the people who are in these communities, they are well aware of their situations. <laughs> Period. Okay, what else besides that? Right. And, and, I, and then I point out, okay, the film that you would make um, for a predominantly white audience, and I always say this, who has chosen not to see, is very different from the film that you would make for an audience who um, is in that neighborhood who is living those circumstances. Right. Always ask white people, why don't they tell their own stories? No, no, no. Okay, one thing I wrote in my interview notes about you, Chester, is 
uh, and I'm, I'm speaking as a woman of a certain age who is, has a level of sensitivity to heat. Um, if you are ever with Chester and you're a woman of a certain age, you don't have to worry about the heat because he is always throwing some shade around. Yeah. <laughs> I always, always ask that question. I always like, like, I remember a friend of ours, he tells us this story, this white guy, he tells us this story that he wants to write about these black people and like thugs. And I'm like, what have you gone through? And I'm like, you know, how was it growing up for you? And he, he tells us a story about how he was traumatized and how people thought that, you know, he was gay and all this stuff, but he wasn't, he was actually straight. And I'm like, so why don't you write a movie about that? That's a really good story that I would actually I mean, you gotta understand how I felt at film school, make my first short is walk for me, predominant black trans women in, in the thing, in, in my home. And my, my classmates, when I was making it, I mean, the professors, the classmates, everybody's like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? This is not real, they're not actors. Meanwhile, two of the people in my thing, one of them is a star on Pose now, you know. Okay. You know what I'm saying? It's just so funny. Okay. <laughs> people say when they don't know what's gonna happen. But then right. the thing is, it's like after the movie comes out and does well and leads to getting a TV show, now all of a sudden all these people wanna do black queer stories. And I'm just like, and then the professors can encourage this. We talk about the, the necessity of documentary film to educate people. And I really do believe in a visual culture, this Instagram, social media age. The documentaries have become even more important in, in the masses. And it's like part of, a part of the thing that documentaries have, have, have kind of let go of in this current generation is the idea of teaching the audience skepticism about the film. Like when you watch Peer Kids, I'm not trying to be the authority. So when y'all see it, audience, in that movie, you, the people in your film are speaking for themselves. Yeah. You're, you're asking the questions. Yes. And, um, but, and also like, I mean, I think you have a very, cause you can actually, for the audience, like you can he actually hear Elegance um, asking folks the questions um, on, on camera. Yeah, well, he's he's off camera, and you can you can hear him, and um, you actually have like a really a good like journalistic approach because um, sometimes, like, particularly that that the early scene with the with the with the white dude talk about Obama, and I'm like, if I if I heard that answer, I would have got off. And you're like, oh, well, tell me more, you know, because <laughs> like you you know, I need this for my movie. <laughs> Oh, I guess, well, yeah, yeah. I was That's why we edit movies so you don't see all of the reactions. I mean, I all the reactions. I actually <laughs> dug into him, but by the end of that conversation, yes, he pulled away. Well, because it was like okay. things too where he just hopped into the conversation, like if was, yeah, because like he just like yeah. like oh, there's a camera. I need to be on camera. I don't know what you're doing, but you know this world was clearly built for me and about me, so I'm gonna get in your way. Right. Right. Now, I could definitely sense all that. Right, right. <laughs> but it's also like, you know, you have to, I sometimes I feel like whenever I talk about the structural damage that I, is inflicted on me for being black and gay, that I need to have a scorecard. Like, like whenever something bad happens, I need to write it down and date it and put a name on it. So then that way, when I talk to the next white person who's concerned about my, the well-being of my race. I'm like, oh, here's my scorecard. See, it's true, you know? So that moment, it was for me like, let me give this man, okay, you want it to be about you? All right, I'm curious to know, do you see us? I know, and it was crazy because he kept asking like, like, what do you mean? I'm like, look to your left or to your right, whichever direction it was, I don't even <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you asked several times. I mean, it's so funny because I was like, when we were, when we were in the, in like edits of that, I was like, you know, Elegance, maybe we should take him out because we're validating his whiteness by even like putting him in the film. And I realized that no, 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 actually, you should see how these white people treat these kids on the pier because this is how we did is what they always do. It's why. Here, it's why it's not a safe place anymore for them, you know. Right. For I mean, right there, it with the people asking, "Can you see the people who are right here?" And he just could not understand 
that question. Like, I'm like, I'm like, and as we say, it doesn't sound like bless is a little hard. Well, I'm also trying to come from a space of compassion as well, because it's like, you know, if I had to overcome, if, I, if I'm in the constant process of overcoming internalized racism and homophobia, imagine what it is for a white, straight man, right? How straight? I mean, that, that's the level of, of blindness. And I mean, that's something that, um, that uh, is addressed in the film about um, James Baldwin, yeah, I am not your Negro. You know, I mean, there talks about the willful ignorance and how how um, one of the most damaging aspects of white supremacy, I'm misquoting this, is that it, it turns like white folks into, he, he uses the phrase moral monsters. Yeah. yeah, and we're reaching a point in society where it's not sustainable. The earth is literally burning because of unchecked white supremacist agenda. We had our first sinkhole on our block. The way I look at it, particularly the people who are doing the work mm. and who are like actually making, I don't say, I don't like diversity, but I, I do like inclusion, who are actually practicing inclusion and trying to make it happen without a lot of support. And I'm talking about um, um, brown and black and um, indigenous and other folks of color, like particularly on the industry side, as well as white folks who are, who are doing that work without getting the support. Um, okay, so when I, speak up on a proposal about um, that's about a Native American community that is not respectful and doesn't respect the dignity of that particular community. Okay, I'm, I'm doing it for them, but I'm also doing it for me. You know, it's a, it's a measure of my humanity for me to speak up. That's the consciousness thing too. It's like, when do you speak and when do you not speak? Because there's moments where they're like, no, 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 don't say that. Don't say that right now because, you know, there'll be some backlash, you know? There's always going to be backlash, no matter what. No matter what, we're, we're walking down in backlash at any time. It feels like everything can be taken away from, you know? I don't, it, it's, it's just so crazy to have that feeling in the background, but people praise you for being this talented artist or this, you know, this thing. And it's like, Am I re and it makes you question yourself inside sometimes because like, am I this thing? Because look how they treat me afterwards. Like, you know. Right. You, but also like how they treat you on the way too. That, that too. It's fun. Yeah. It, yeah. It's like, oh, now you want to like shower me all these accolades and now you're with a partner, but you're right there like obstructing or just not even seeing, not even obstructing. Like you're I didn't offer me crumbs to produce your movies. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's, it's, um, it's a, it's a really an issue about trust in so many different directions and so many different registers. And, you know, one of the biggest frustrations I have is that, you know, like where I'm at in my career right now, I've done things that, you know, I've executive produced a TV show. I've created. People should be knocking at down your door. And it's not to say that they're not, but I'm still having that conversation of like, well, who do you want to executive produce your idea? Which which powerful white person do you want to align with to open the door for you? And I'm like, but I'm in this room with you right now. Well, you know? but see, I think the thing is about it, what I've learned, it's not even what I've learned, what I've seen and what I believe is that the white producer is there to make sure that it doesn't offend the white audience. Right. I'm realizing that, you know, that point of view, you know, I don't need your point of view. I don't need that because this is not, this is, I know who my audience is, right. you know? Right. <laughs> and I feel like I'm making my audience. Like Martin Luther King said, right? You know, that you can't expect the powerful to give up power peacefully. Because you know? it's in their best interest to do so. And this is how power is maintained generationally, is this idea of, of, of you know, of being deemed safe by the white game. <clears throat> being deemed, you know, that like even the notion of unbiased. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I have collaborated with other filmmakers or, or spoken to other filmmakers kind of at my level who are kind of emerging, breaking through right now, who are of color in some way, shape, or form. And they're so careful not to submit scripts that would have them painted as the angry minority, right? Yeah, because we always angry. I'm, and no one ever asks, like, uh, 
Well, sometimes they think we're angry when we're not angry because you know they're so damn some some folks are just so damn sensitive. But uh, you know, sometimes we have shit to be legitimately angry about. About it is, well, the thing about it is angry or not. The question should not be about whether or not you are angry. The question should be, why is it necessary? Why is the middle always defined by the white gaze? Why is unbiased? Why? 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 Like in my pursuit, like for instance, in my we're going into pre-production on my first fiction feature. Um, you know, one of the characters is this, like you know, kind of by the book, rule-following marine white guy who has issues around race and sexuality. He's a homophobe and he's a racist. Granted, you know, we've been fortunate enough to find some good partners now that were financed, we're able to go forward. But in the run-up to this, I can't tell you how many times I've heard, well, if you could just make that white guy a little bit more redeemable. Like, I don't know if insert A-list actor's name would want to play that part unless he's more redeemable. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, and, I, and, I, and, and somehow him not being redeemed by the black person that he is oppressing mm. means that that character is somehow two-dimensional when he is not two-dimensional. Yeah, yeah, when that's actually the reality. You don't want to see yourself because that's what you're really like. <laughs> yes, yes. You know? I, mean, I mean, that's the whole, you know, um, the all the, the white savior movies. Too, one of Elegance's teachers told him that, you know, for pure kids, for pure kids that as a white person, I don't feel comfortable watching this. Like, there's nothing in this that, like, makes me feel good afterwards. It makes me feel bad. Yes, yeah, so I, it, since you feel bad, uh, make a step to do something about it. That's what you should take away from it. This is the same teacher that, in, in the course of us working together, at one of my favorite, I'm, I'm a big hybrid. If you watch my, my fiction back. films, you'll be like, oh, documentary. And then you watch, you know, you watch my docs, like, oh, that's like a fiction film. It's just called Snow in the Bluff. It's just about some white kids who go to the ghetto to film themselves buying drugs, but the drug dealers steal their camera and make a documentary about themselves and their lives. I love this movie so much. But I wrote it in a class, and the same teacher who told me that pure kids makes white people feel racist because it doesn't, because, you know, no one goes to college at the end, and people don't, you know, so it makes her, made her feel racist. This is the same one who told me that Snow, when she watched Snow on the Bluff, she exploded in this racist tirade of, like, these black people and their hippity-hop and their gangsterism doing all these And this is in a classroom that I'm $60,000 a year to be in. When I go to my my the the the, the brass, the, the top notch people at my school who are supposed to check this teacher and let her know that she's wrong, they actually attacked me for being insensitive to her. They wonder why I skip class all the time. You know? The thing I love about Pure Kids too is how precious the point the, how precious elegance is with all the participants. And how uh, like when you watch Paris is Burning, you don't feel that relationship between the camera necessarily and the people that's there. You know, you don't you don't see the agency there. You don't see uh, Jenny really forming a relationship with these people in a way that you know benefits them really. It you know it feels like it feels like wow you're dancing. Like hold on hold on sit there really fast and be glamorous and then let's you know and you know even what they're talking about, it's like you're dancing around these real things that are that's happening in your life. And it's like, no, we need to talk about this because black people need to know that when you kick your kids out, this is what's gonna happen. When you don't support your kids, this is what's gonna happen to them. They're gonna become a statistic because you, it's your fault. It's your fault. And, and the other part is too, is like, you know, on the, on the positive angle, I also made this movie for those black, and brown kids who will be kicked out, those LGBTQ who will be kicked out. So they can see themselves. And they can take joy and take pride in themselves. Like, you know, like it's gonna be hard, but like in Paris is burning, it feels like they throw balls for the camera people, right? When they kiki, it's, it's yes. between them. And it's, this is them. it's their joy, it's their moment that they build together. And I and I try to just be there mm -hmm. and there being them and be there for them being them and not for them being themselves for this idea of like, you know, like, I mean, when I was making, every time I've made a doc about mm -hmm. a black person, somebody white told me documentaries are not for black people. Then that means that it goes back to what we were saying before, the only black people worth listening to 
the only poor black people worth listening to are those who are singing and dancing for their problems. And performing, yes. When would they stop performing and they start looking at the camera and talking to the audience like, what are you gonna do to help me? Then all of a sudden they're just another panhandler that we ignore. They're another, you know, nuisance to our, our like safety and mobility. And I don't In our new film that we're working on, there's a section in it about menstruacy. And it, 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 it's, it's rocked my mind actually, because I'm like, wow. Like how we say like, you know, racism is still here and all of this menstruacy is still here. Well, we're talking about James Reese Europe, who is the, many people say is the inventor of modern jazz. Um, really coming along in like the early 20th century, like 1903, he moves to New York. By 1916, he becomes the top musician in New York City. And at that time, he moved to New York to be a classical violinist and discovers that for Black people, Black people were not really allowed to play classical music, that had to indeed play the popular Black music at that time, which was ragtime, which was minstrel coon music. That's the music that sold, right? And I find it to be interesting because as he starts to become wealthier and more prominent as a musician for playing this music that in many ways on one, on one side is demeaning to black people, but then on the other side is an example of black ingenious creativity. We, he's also doing this at the peak of coonery and minstrelsy on Broadway in vaudeville. So that he's in this, and, and then I'm looking at this character through his, the, the, the lens of his contemporaries as well. I'm thinking about W.B. Du Bois's notion of double consciousness, that for like the top menstrual performers of the time, that the fact that they were making a mockery of their dark skin, mockery of their blackness, there was no, there was no, to the white audience, there was no double consciousness. There was no re realization. This is a person performing for me. Like, you know, at least nowadays, like, I hope for a person like Beyonce, right? When she's off the stage, people realize that she's not on stage. You know, back then, brown skin in a white place meant, and you weren't working there, you were You were there to make us laugh. You're there to make us feel superior. Your entertainment. It's like dealing with like, and eventually this man, after becoming like, you know, the biggest musician in New York, he gets an opportunity to go fight in World War One, and he's by W.B. Du Bois' arguments that the only way for him to be seen as a true, full, three-dimensional human being was to be a patriot, was to fight for democracy, yeah. was to fight. And that didn't work. Because what in that movie, um, well, the play, A Soldier's Play, which turns to such yeah. a story, um, that line, um, Adolf Caesar, he says, no matter what they do, they still hate you. Yeah. yeah. And, and then when he's, he's saying that line, you know, before he's, you know, executed, um, He's saying that that phrase from a place of despair because he so wants to be accepted by whiteness. Yes. But we had to learn this. I think that what I'm learning, because we had an argument, not an argument, we had a discussion rather about, um, or debate about W.B. Du Bois and uh, Marcus Garvey. And I was interested in W.B. Du Bois at the end of his life, wanted to go back to Africa. Yeah, he went back. Yeah. yeah. And he I was, was like, I'm like, out, y'all. Exactly. <laughs> but I was like, you know, I feel like you have to go through, like, his double consciousness. Like, you have to go through these things and you realize, like, you know, you go to Harvard, you go to Columbia, you go to Yale, you go to... You know, so many of us, we're the first in our families to make the amount of money or to accomplish the things that, you know, we've done. When I was 18 years old, I styled a show for the uh, French Embassy, National Smithsonian, and brought all these fashion designers, you know, from New York down to DC to study for AIDS. But it's like, you know, the things that, you know, these things that we do that, are, that sets us apart from, or make us like the, the top 10% or whatever, it, you know, it's a lot. It's not a tip 10, it's yeah. a lot. It's a lot and so much weight to have on your shoulders. And like, it feels like sometimes when I'm carrying my entire race, I'm carrying not just my race, but every brown person in the world is on my shoulders because of they're treated this way in every country in the world. Chester and Allegance have a true and open partnership that is rooted in love and art. 
They see each other, hold each other, and celebrate one another. And they share the common goal of creating work in which people can see and recognize themselves. Their lessons and wisdom learned while navigating what they call the documentary industrial complex and dealing with the burden of double consciousness ring true for many of us. So how do we hold on to ourselves in the face of the very real psychological violence that is the white gaze? Particularly when, as Elegant says, we are put in a position to beg white people to not enact their savagery on our beings, or when we are told that we're going to get less than what we are worth, so we just have to deal with it and make sure we show our pearly whites. Make no mistake, all of this is racialized trauma, so don't minimize that fact. And there is a way out. The steps I've taken include finding my community to people who share my values, trauma-informed therapy with a BIPOC woman, medication, because sometimes you need Prozac to deal with some of these fools, and shaking off the white gaze and its erroneous expectations. And yes, there are consequences, but as Zora Neale Hurston says, if you are silent about your pain, they'll kill you and say you enjoyed it. So speak up and don't let them have the last word. Thank you so much for listening today. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on all your podcast platforms. Visit our website at whatsupwdocs.com and make sure to listen to our next episode with filmmaker Ruskar Bursky and our festival collaboration episodes called What's Up With Docs At, which will be available this month and February. And we will launch the new season in April 2021. Today's program was hosted by Tony Bell and produced and edited by Ronell Schubert. Music is by Sierra Thomas.